Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, it is so good to see you on this Thanksgiving Sunday. I, I don't know about you, but I love it when it's actually sunny on Thanksgiving weekend. Fall colors, all that kind of stuff, and turkey and all those good things. I loved. It was a highlight for me. I don't, I don't know, but just watching uh, little Eliana, just loving all the beautiful stuff up here. She just like she wanted to touch it. She was like, <laughs> "It's pretty, isn't it?" Thank you, Carol Hansen, for your great work in making this place beautiful and just reminding us. Isn't that good? <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, I got to say, when I did my shopping this week, I was in a hurry. I forgot to get anything. So I went into my cupboards this morning, and I discovered an interesting fact about Angel and I. All our food is expired. <laughs> like, it's all like 2021, and there's some 2020 in there, and I, and I don't want to look into the back where there's probably some 2019, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I took uh, some ibuprofen this week. Well, that was like 2014. Is that good, or is that... Am I, am I okay? Like, is that why I got tremors? Oh, man, not good. Yeah, the nurse over here is going, going well, I'm, you're fine. You're fine. Just doesn't work as well, right? That's my thing. Pretty much the same. Hey, you're good. Don't throw out your old drugs. Is, that's what I just heard. <laughs> Maybe not across the board. Um, can we ask our lawyer whether we're liable for what I say? Like, because, I mean, it could be bad. Um, hey, we're going to dive into the Gospel of Matthew again. We're returning to this wonderful series uh, of this biography written by Jesus, written by one of his, uh, I think, favorite but closest followers, Matthew. And today we're jumping right ahead. We're at chapter 11, if you, in case you wonder where we, have, where we are. It features John the Baptist, who we first discovered in the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 3. But interestingly enough, our speaker last week, our guest speaker, uh, Mark, talked about him from John chapter 3, so I'm kind of glad we're returning to John the Baptist today. If you've got a Bible, it might be helpful for you this morning to turn to Matthew chapter 11. We'll read the first 15 verses, and I'm going to invite you again to stand for the reading of God's Word. So after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, 
and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, and God, we just uh, give you this time. We invite you to speak to us again. Uh, um, alert our, our, our hearts and our minds. Give me clarity with which to speak and our minds clarity with which to hear your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, there's a well-known Canadian uh, philosopher named Charles Taylor. Some of you may have heard of him. There's been quite a buzz about him since his kind of seminal work a few years ago called The Rise or The Age, The Secular Age, it's called. And it's basically a study on how we got to where we are as now a secular culture. Quick summary would be is that hundreds of years ago, faith would kind of be the default position for, for most people. Now, in our day, doubt would actually be kind of the default position for most people. Um, after high school, I've told many of you before that I took a gap year over in England, went to a, a Christian college, and one of my roommates was an English guy named Tim. Tim and I were pretty much polar opposites from each other. <laughs> um, he was English, very English, uh, polite, uh, quiet, um, polite, did I say he was opposite from me? Uh, very, very... And, and, Along with that, he was further along in his Christian faith than I was. And so I saw him as being someone who was pretty together. But as I got to know Tim, we were roommates for a time, and, and he confessed to me that during this time at Bible college, he was having kind of a mini crisis of faith. And for this guy, he agonized over some serious, serious doubts. And I would say it can be dramatic for any of us who have doubts about God or seasons of doubts about our faith. How many of you have had this come to your mind? You know, like, am I nuts? Is, is this faith of mine real? Is Jesus real? Is the scriptures something I can put my trust in? Is, is God really God? Um, you know, am I just making all of this up? Have you had those kind of moments? And, and it, sometimes they come in spite of all the amazing ways that God has maybe answered prayers in your life, or maybe he's delivered you in some really cool way from some difficulty, or, or just how you've maybe sensed his sweet presence in a worship service or in a time of quiet. Sometimes a doubt, which can begin a kind of a really small thing, can, can grow into a whole season where we actually question our faith. Now, now, if you've been there, or if you are there, let me say, you are not alone. You're in good company, some of which were sitting around you in this church. But including John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest man who ever lived. So we're going to walk through this text, and then we're going to come back to the end at how we might move beyond doubt towards faith, even in a day where doubt seems to be just kind of the, the air we all breathe. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, and, and by the way, we don't, somebody asked me after church last week, why was John in prison? We don't actually find that out till chapter 14, where we get the quick summary of of basically John had spoken out against King Herod who had been having an adulterous affair with his sister-in-law. I know, ick, right? Sister-in-law affair. He ends up divorcing his wife so that he can marry this woman, which causes kind of a, a mini international crisis in that day. It was not a good thing. And so he spoke out against that. But this, 
along with the fact that John spoke about a coming kingdom, which I think probably threatened King Herod, and so Herod had John arrested and thrown into prison. So when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, those are the things we studied back in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Scholars tell us the one who is to come would be a figure of speech that referred to the Messiah. And John's asking the question, are you, Jesus, really the Messiah? Which is kind of a big deal because it means John is having doubts. And it's a big deal because John the Baptist, I mean, think about who he was. He's the guy who, when he was in his mother's womb, leapt when Mary walked into the the room pregnant with Jesus. This, This is John the Baptist who was in the Jordan River with Jesus, and after Jesus' baptism, the the heavens kind of broke open supernaturally, and the Father speaks blessing over Jesus. The voice comes, and, and the Spirit descends on Jesus. That was John. And it's the same John who we looked at last week, who in a, in a moment of great maturity, right? It, you think about it. His ministry was kind of declining, and Jesus' ministry was going up, and and, and he says these great words, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. Like the height of maturity, like, bless it, Lord, bless it, you know. I'm just the bridegroom, I'm not the groom. Keep your eyes on him. This is the same John who's having doubts. Now, why is he doubting? We, we don't know for sure, but one of the clues in, implicit in the story is, is just Jesus maybe doesn't match up with his expectations, I wonder, have you been there? Have you been in that place where Jesus somehow did not live up to your expectations of him? I think we probably all have. I think sometimes our kind of narrow expectations of how God does what he does or when he does what he does can, can actually be a great enemy to authentic faith. Verse 4 says, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now imagine John hearing this. And and actually, this would not be news for him. Actually, he already knows it. Because in in verse 2, it says, John's hearing of the deeds of Jesus actually seems to prompt this crisis of faith. So what's the problem? (laughs) I mean, think about it. Jesus is out there doing all these miraculous deeds, and where's John? Stuck, rotting in prison. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. You know, maybe even here on a Sunday at Hillside uh, during a God story moment where we invite testimonies and people get up and they share these stories of God kind of breaking into their lives in some, some cool way. You know, that, that person who gets up and says, I've been stuck in a dead-end job for so long and I prayed and, and uh, through a miraculous set of circumstances and even coincidences, I in- landed the perfect job just for me. And we appropriately as a community celebrate that, we cheer it, we're, we're grateful. But what, what about you if you've been sitting there and you're going, you, you've had this, ju- this dream or this passion or this desire or this, you know, career idea and, and, and you've been praying about it and it's been 
forever, like you've been praying about it, and nothing seems to happen. How do you feel in that moment? It's like, God, I, I, good for them, but I'm struggling with this. Or have you been in that moment where somebody who's really sick comes forward to prayer for prayer, and in that moment, they're miraculously healed? And yet you've been struggling with some chronic illness that you've been carrying for many, many years, and it seems like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling. How do you feel in that moment? Part of you are happy for them, but there's part of you that might be more like, God, where are you? Did you forget about me? Is this real? Am I nuts to believe in you, God? I think this is where John is at. So this is kind of part of what's, what's going on here. You, you know, there's something interesting we find in verse 5. That's the verse that says, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, all that kind of stuff, the good news is proclaimed to the, the, the poor. Now, this is probably a quote that Jesus was giving straight out of the, the prophets and, and maybe Isaiah. Uh, it might have been Isaiah 61, one, which foretold the coming of the Messiah. It reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. So who's a prisoner in our story? John is. Notice Jesus omits this whole part about freeing captives to John. And what Jesus is saying to John is, John, I'm the Messiah you have been waiting for. I really am. And blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk. But John, in this instance, I'm not freeing you. I'm, I'm not breaking you out of prison. I'm not overturning King Herod's kingdom to release you. That's not my way. Can you imagine how heavy this would be for John? But then Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed are those who don't stumble. Blessed, it's a word uh, some of you know is the, in Greek, it's the word makarios, and it can be translated fortunate or happy or well-off or, or at peace. And then there's the other key word of that line, which is stumble. The word is scandalastisloi. It's really beyond my means to pronounce. Uh, it's the word from which we get scandal, and it can mean to cause shock or angry, anger, to uh, offend or be offended. A good translation could be, blessed is anyone who is not offended on account of me. I think that's the ESV version. Scholar Dale Bruner translated it this way, bless you if you don't throw the whole thing over because you're expecting a different kind of Messiah. And the NIV uses the word stumble. I think it's a good use. It has this idea that means to fall. To, to trip up, to stumble into sin, or to stumble away from God. So Jesus is saying, blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense, or get angry, or fall away, or trip up, or get all messed up and walk away because I don't match your expectation. So that's the, that's the message here that, that Jesus directs towards John. Blessed are those who don't stumble. But Jesus then turns to the crowd and he begins talking to them. Um, he talks to them about John. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? 
If not, what did you go out to see? A, a, a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Scholars tell us here that what's going on here is like a head-to-head comparison between John the Baptist and King Herod. Um, you got this reed swayed by the wind. Apparently, Herod had coins minted, as most kings did, with his face on one side, and on the other side was a reed leaning into the wind. A, a leaning reed could also mean something along the lines of a politician, somebody who's shifty or, or not to be trusted, a person who lacks integrity. And, and then a man dressed in fine clothing, this was totally the stuff you would see in royal palaces. And Jesus is saying, you don't go to John the Baptist for, like, fashion tips. I mean, we're talking John the Baptist, Mr. Camel Hair guy, right? You know, he's not rich. He's not the kind of guy you follow on Facebook or on TikTok. He's nothing like Herod at all. He's a prophet, somebody who's, you know, tuned into God. You know, he's a listener. He's paying attention and receptive to God's moving and God's voice. And he's more than a prophet, Jesus says. He he goes on to say in verse 10, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Now, everybody in that culture would have known what they're talking about because when a king was planning to arrive in a community or a city, they would send first a herald or an emissary who would go and kind of prepare. It'd be like the advance team making way for the king. And and this particular line was a quote from Malachi about a figure who would come before the Messiah to help the world get ready for the Messiah. And and Jesus is really clear about this here. He's saying, John is that guy. He's the messenger. And then he goes on in verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So cutting to the chase here, what Jesus is saying is John is at the end of one era, and Jesus is at the beginning of a new one. Which actually means it's better to be a nobody in the new era than the greatest man who ever lived in the old era. That's what he was getting at with that line. It's like having any kind of car, and this is a stretch, but literally any kind of car you can think of is better than any kind of horse and buggy, right? Like it's just, why is that? Well, the one's just kind of obsolete, right? Um, It's not that the horse and buggy were bad. It's just like the the, the car is that much better. Uh, Scholar N.T. Wright talks about this. He says, The whole sweep and swath of history that led up to John and his work was now being wound up. Not because it was a failure, but because it was a success. If the law and the prophets were looking forward to something that was yet to come, They are set aside when the new thing arrives. Not because they haven't told the truth, but because they have. Israel's long history from Abraham and Moses through the prophets to the present moment was one long preparation, one long getting ready time. Now the preparation was over and the reality had dawned. 
Hence Jesus' line. John, John is Elijah, which was code again for the one who prepared the way. So Jesus is saying, we're on the edge of this new era, this new you know, era of all human history. And then his closing line. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And it's like he's, bam, drops the microphone right there. It's really cool. Why? Because if John's the messenger, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. But Jesus can't just say, I'm the Messiah. John got arrested for saying the Messiah is coming. Can you imagine what would happen to Jesus? Jesus would actually be crucified for that very thing. But imagine, this wasn't yet his time. He still has more work to do. As one scholar put it, that's why he does all this Messiah-like stuff, healing, raising the dead, doing all these things, delivering from demons, and then says, don't tell anyone. Shh, be quiet. It wasn't his time. So Jesus would do these Messiah-like things and then say things like, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So anybody who's actually really watching and paying attention will know who I am. They'll see it. They'll read the signs. And in light of that, reorder your life around me in light of this new reality that has come. Isn't that good? I love it. Okay, so what do we do with this today? Well, key line in the story is verse 6. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. And we'll come back to that. But first, a few thoughts on doubt. I want to really say I've been very helped by John Mark Comer here. By the way, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, our pastoral staff got to go down to Portland and attended a conference that he was facilitating. And one of my highlights was actually going up and having a conversation with John Mark Comer. Really, really good guy. And uh, I've been reading his book called Live No Lies. And I'd highly recommend it. Really great read. Live No Lies. But he makes three observations about doubt. Let's go through these real quick. First is, doubt is simply the air we breathe in a secular society. This is the new normal in a Western world. There's that line from Jesus that says, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Well, what does that mean? It means the kingdom, you know, God's kingdom from Israel to today has always been under attack in the world, and violent people have always been raiding the kingdom and killing off its leaders to stop the kingdom in its tracks. Right? John the Baptist himself being a good example, what happened to John? He was arrested and then beheaded. What happens to Jesus? You know, crucified. What happened to his disciples? Killed. Uh, millions in the early church in the first four centuries were put to death. And it's still happening today. Persecution of Christians is at an all-time high. Estimates of about 100,000 Christians are killed every year because of their faith, particularly in places like the Middle East and and Southeast Asia. Now here in Canada, you know, in in the West, our our bodies are not so much under threat because of our Christian faith. our, Our souls are. John Mark Homer says, the air we breathe in a secular, progressive urban, busy, noisy city is kind of an assault on our faith. You felt it, right? An assault? It feels like an assault, doesn't it? I've seen this too many times. I think of my, one of my best friends. He was best man at my wedding. We grew up together. Um, 
We went to church together, all kinds of stories we could tell you, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but he was a passionate, committed Christian who was a big inspiration to me. And over the last decade or so, I've, I've watched my friend from a distance as his Christian faith has kind of just ebbed away, just kind of eroded away to the place where now he would, he would definitely call himself a non-believer. He's lost his faith. And, and, and I'm not alone. I, I know you probably know of people who you could say they've lost their faith to this culture that we're in. And it can happen through a crisis of faith. It can happen through what many are calling this deconstruction of faith or through just drifting away through competing passions and priorities. Often it's just through one small compromise after another and the passion for the things of God fall away. As, as Jesus said, the, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and, and what they do is they just literally choke off faith. They choke off God's word. So doubt, that's the first point, is this doubt is the norm in our day. we got to know that. Secondly, doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt, you might say, is the struggle to believe. It's the search for truth. Unbelief, on the other hand, is kind of like the stubborn refusal to believe. Doubt is, is I want to believe, but I, I'm wrestling with these questions, right? Unbelief is kind of shutting down the possibility of belief. You know, it's like the kid, you know, who doesn't want to hear the instructions from the parents. They're like, nah, 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 right? Like, you know that? They, they cover their ears so they might not hear. That's kind of what's going on when, when you struggle with unbelief. Let me say, friends, uh, just with great conviction, that there are great and credible and, and intelligible and rational reasons for faith. You take any of the atheistic philosophers of our day, and pit them up in conversation or debate among st the strongest of our Christian thinkers in our day, and it's really, really clear that there is a solid foundation for believing, for faith. But I'll also say this. That's not the big question for most people. You, you know, for most people, it's not, is there a God? But if there is a God, do I actually want that God? They, they don't really care. So doubt and, and unbelief are not the same, and Jesus treats them very differently. Notice, Jesus doesn't beat up on John for his doubt. I, I think he's so gracious to doubters. He doesn't say, blessed are those who never doubt. Really, what he says is, blessed are those who, when they doubt, don't stumble. Number three, the opposite of faith isn't, you know, unbelief isn't doubt. It's actually certainty and control. Again, to quote Comer, he says, think of faith and doubt as companions to each other in the pursuit of truth. What, what, what this means is that, is that faith or doubt in our faith can actually serve us. It can actually grow us, especially when it presses us towards truth. You know, I actually don't think Jesus gets freaked out by the doubts that we have. He, he can use our doubts to actually grow us. I think, I think Jesus would be the first to say, follow the truth wherever it leads. It's safe to do that. But know this, he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you follow the truth, it'll always end up 
at Jesus. I want to say this morning that I'm not up here speaking as a non-doubter. I've lived a life that has been plagued by certain doubts along the way and seasons of doubt. I think of the days when I was in university. Um, it was such a challenge to my faith. I, I don't think there's anything like a college classroom that can get, bring questions to our, our, the reasonableness of our Christian faith. But even then, in looking back, and even in the moment of it, me kind of being pressed up against these questions actually seemed to have this effect of strengthening my faith and growing me in ways and broadening my faith, giving it more dimension. My, my faith became more solid and more real and more substantive through my doubts. So a couple of quick thoughts here to wrap up. I know some of you are you know, wanting to go home and stuff a turkey as if that's a fun thing. And I don't want to keep you from that, but I want to ask a couple of things. How do we cultivate faith in light of our doubts? And how do we keep from stumbling? Two thoughts. First is this, doubt our doubts. Doubt our doubts. Our culture tells us to doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. And that can be all right, <laughs> but we also need to doubt our beliefs and believe our beliefs. I, I almost didn't get that right. Didn't I get that right? <laughs> I don't know if I did. Okay, doubt, I'm going to read this. Doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. There we go. We need to do that. There we go. I, I'm helped by that. You know, kind of when we're sitting on the fence, why does it always seem that we lean towards doubt as opposed to leaning towards belief? And friends, you've got to know there is a cultural value in our day right now that doubt is kind of sophisticated, you know? It's for the open-minded. Doubt is for the tolerant. Faith, on the other hand, is for the simple. The message is, is if, you're if you're really smart, you are a doubting skeptic. And if you're simple, ah, you're a person of faith. That's a major, major cultural bias that we need to understand. Because it doesn't lead to truth. And I, I would say this, I'd go as far as to say it doesn't lead to life, it goes to another place. You know, I, I've come to the conviction that I would rather be wrong and follow the ways of Jesus than be right and follow the values of our culture. I've come to so appreciate and love the ways of Jesus, and I, and I, I truly believe, I don't think there's a better way. I, I had a, a, a couple that walked away from faith a number of years ago, and I sat down to debrief with that with them, and and, and they described as, they said, yeah, we, we just don't see faith as being really central to our lives anymore. And, and I asked the question, I said, how's that working for you? And they went on to describe, and they didn't seem to connect the dots until we had this conversation, but how on all kinds of measurements, their quality of life had been in decline. You know, they, they were less happy, and, and that couple went on to divorce, and, and just all kinds, I'm not saying because of the loss of faith, but it didn't help their, their marriage. Uh, in all kinds of ways, the loss of their faith had a, had a real cost. So doubt your doubts. That's, that's point one. Number two, grow your faith. Grow your faith. When John doubted, Jesus said to John's friends, go tell John what you see and what you hear. I'd say that's still the best way to grow your faith, to actually see the works of Jesus and actually read the words of Jesus. Good news is there's all kinds of ways to do this. You know, reading the scriptures daily, 
you know, reading the, the teachings of Jesus and, and feeding on that truth, getting it into your life. You know, coming to church on a Sunday or, or being part of a life group, these are huge helps to faith. They're, they're critical to my faith. I know that I need them. Yet honestly, we are in a day where we are so casual about these practices of simple things that used to be a given in, among Christians in years gone by was just showing up to church, just being there. This is, I just want to say, this is the lowest hanging fruit for most of us, is simply showing up. Because Jesus, I think, most often shows up in our lives through other brothers and sisters who are followers of Jesus, who make Jesus more real to us. Have you, have you experienced that? I'm probably speaking to the converted here because you're actually at church. So way to go, guys. Give your, you, know, you get a gold star, as, as Victor Meisowicz used to say, for showing up today. Another way is to, to simply read. You know, read books. I mean, if you're a reader, don't want to guilt out those non-readers in the crowd. Some of you just like, like you're going la, 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 la here at this point. So, so those of you who do like to read, this can be a great way of growing your faith. And there's so many great books out there. Tim Keller's, uh, all of his books, but I, I'd recommend Reason for God. Um, John Mark Comer's Live No Lies, uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Um, N.T. Wright's Simply Christian. N.T. Wright, just about anything he writes, I think is really good. Uh, Rodney Stark, really helpful for me when, I, when thinking historically. The, the Triumph of Christianity, very helpful read. Um, those are really, really great. And you might not be a reader, so um, you can actually listen to books. My son has done that. My son has never been, one of my sons has never been a reader, and uh, he has long bus rides to school, and he just, he's devoured probably about 40 books in the last three years just by listening to them on his bus rides. And, he's, and I'd say my son has been super enriched by that. Um, and then sharing faith stories that help strengthen our faith. That's why we do God stories from time to time. I wander with the microphone. Those are so important. Uh, listening to those, that, that happens in, in the context mostly of life groups where we share the stories of God working in our lives. One more thought. Let me just say, it might be helpful to know that we are all people of faith. Whether we're Christians or not, everyone is a person of faith. It's not like there's those with faith or without faith. We all put our trust in something. The, the question is, what life purpose or ideal or set of beliefs are you building your life around? That's faith. We all lean into that. We, we all have it. And it's good to, 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 to recognize that. And I want to say that the end goal of our apprenticeship or discipleship to Jesus isn't a life free of doubt. It's a life full of trust. Jesus doesn't call us to 100% certainty with no doubt. We will never achieve that he calls us to trust him not even to trust our ideas about him but to trust him as a person and he says we'll be blessed fortunate happy well off at peace when we trust him blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me he says i think this whole story of john the baptist is an invitation for you and for me to trust jesus to trust him even when he doesn't meet our expectations, even when he doesn't seem to come through for us in a particular need that we have, even when our prayers don't seem to be answered and we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and even when we have our doubts, there is this invitation from Jesus 
to trust. Why don't we pray? Uh, let's, uh, we'll close in song right after that. Oh God, would you um, take this, this really cool example of John the Baptist who we think of as, as a spiritual giant and yet it turns out he's a guy like, like us, like just a regular man who wrestled with his, am I crazy? Are you real, God? We thank you for his example. And I, I thank you, Lord, for the way you spoke to him and brought comfort to him and perspective. Would you continue to do that for our faith? I pray, Jesus, that you might help us in this journey uh, with doubt as part of our experience. Help us to know that, that we can actually doubt our doubts. We don't have to actually lean into them. We can lean into our beliefs. Would you help us with that, God, we pray? I pray, uh, Lord, you'd help us to grow faith, to, to choose practices that would cultivate it and nourish it and flourish it in our lives, God. And Jesus, most of all, I pray you'd help us learn how to trust you. All, as we sang this morning, um, about the goodness of God. God, we've seen that. Uh, you've been faithful to us in the past. Help us to look towards what you're going to do in the future. Trusting you, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.